This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Common Practice, a monthly podcast about the things people do. Things to do with creativity, collaboration, cultural democracy, and the commons. Today I'm here with Sophie, and we're joined by Jake Harris and Monica Dutter, and we're going to be talking about their project, A Little Piece of Land. Monica, could I ask you to start us off by just telling us what the project is? Where is it, and and what is the little piece of land itself? Okay. Well, a little piece of land is based um, in East Yorkshire, quite close to the coast, about a mile inland, uh, and 15, 20-ish miles north of Hull. So there's a house, uh, which is where I live, where we live. Um, Jake's not here permanently, but a lot of the time. So the when I first came here, um, the area around the house, which amounts to about half an acre, yeah. um, was basically just guard you know it was it was not particularly landscaped or ornamental, but it was just functioning as garden, quite a pretty front garden, a back garden that was pretty much just lawn with some hedges around the sides um, and the place itself, the property itself, is the second property on a on a working farm, and that half an acre is absolutely completely surrounded, nestled within kind of industrial scale agricultural farmland. Um, and uh, well, that's that's where we are. That's what we are. But what we've done. Um, with that land is that over the course of 10, 9, 10 years yeah. um, we've actually allowed it to transform from these uh, kept gardens that, that were around the house front and back we've allowed it effectively to I mean what one would refer to as rewild so that what grows here now um, is pretty much what wants to grow um, we have a, a small level of intervention just to stop any one species from from taking over and suppressing the the kind of diversity of plants that are growing Um, and we use as much as we possibly can from the area there's also um, some small little patches of woodland involved as well and we use as much as we can to feed us really Um, so the main focus of the project is to do with alternative procurement of food, really. Um, what can be used as food that doesn't come from the supermarket or the greengrocers. And it's um, my guess would be that if, when we go, it'll revert. Some, someone will come here and they will mow the lawns and cut the hedges and do all the things that a good gardener should do, whereas our main... Uh, modus operandi is non-intervention which is very difficult because human beings want to do this and we can see this from the farmer a great he's a lovely guy we, we get on really well with him up the road 
he spent his entire time... Tidying up. Tidying up and controlling nature. And um, he's often coming down and think, oh, can I cut that for you? Can I do this for you? Can I do, you know, the great big industrial sort of uh, mechanical or, 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 you know, electric or, or petrol driven kind of chain things. And uh, what we've done is we've we restrained everything. So to allow it to, you know, become more of a natural environment, allow indigenous species to thrive. And with that came the wildlife. So we now have. We've counted 46 uh, species of bird, everything from raptors, you know, like uh, kestrels and... Uh, harriers. Harriers and owls, through to migratory geese uh, and, and other stuff, uh, birds that come over from Scandinavia. So, um, and water birds too, because we, part of the garden has sunk into something that we call the swamp, which is a kind of like mini wetland as well. So we've got that on one one side of the lawn, um, and so yeah, it's, it's kind of a, another another context for us here is is well apart, apart from the industrial farmland around us is the the coastal situation because we're right near what's called the Holderness Coast uh, in in uh, in east of England <coughs> above Hull, which is part of a a, <coughs> a floodplain from a giant river which fed into. Um, uh, another larger river, which once upon a time was fed into a lake, which then fed into the sea in Doggerland, which in uh, in just post glacial times uh, was was a landmass in the North Sea. So from here all the way down to East Anglia and up to Scarborough and beyond, it's the same floodplain for the river. And uh, and so and that's eroding. The sea is eroding, and climate change isn't helping. So that the the land itself is eroding at a faster rate, and we have uh, caravan parks and roads falling into the sea, uh, just a mile every over, year. Every year, uh, just a mile away. And if you look at a flood map for 2050, um, th- this this whole area was part of um, a fenland once, which was drained in the 19th century. So climate change is also helping to reflood, if you like, with, with, with wetter weather. And so the natural fenland is trying to re, reinstate itself. Uh, we won't get flooded, but we won't be able to go north or west in 2050 where we still to be here. So it's kind of like um, everything's it's very dynamic here and it's, it, you know, the pressure of climate change is having a big effect. Can I just take you back to something you said before which interested me? Two things, in fact. One, when the farmer comes down, over 10 years, have you had any influence on his attitudes or behaviour? Does he, does he, in any sense, recognise what you're trying to do, or does he still think your hedges need a good cutting? OK, that's a very nice question. We, as Jake mentioned, we do have a really good relationship, and he has been incredibly supportive not necessarily of what I do with the hedges and the lawns, but certainly he's been really supportive in terms of us living here and being his tenants, because we are effectively his tenants. With regards to influencing him, I I think that what we've been doing has influenced him. I think I've influenced him. We have our conversations. He does... (laughs) take an interest he asks me things I might be out picking something and he may come along and say 
oh well what, what are you going to do with that then um so he he does show interest i have passed tips on to him not for farming but <laughs> just for his own kitchen um but i don't think he would ever admit that he may have changed his mind about something as a result of conversations we might have had so he i mean we we uh, some people imagine from hearing about what we do that we are also very concerned and involved with the whole organic movement and that everything here would you know we we, we basically would be organic now uh, we have um, industrial farmland on either side of a small piece of land there are ditches but at no point could we deny that there is a huge amount of runoff obviously so the ground that is producing the the plants that we eat we could never ever say that that was organic no. even though I never use anything on it we could never have it certified as organic but um, the farmer he is actually um, anti-organic for the reason that most non-organic farmers are. Um, so what the way he sees organic farming is that it allows pests that he then has to pay extra pesticide to get those pests off his crop mm. um, and that kind of thing. So he doesn't really see um, any good uh, beneficial ideas in, in, in ideas around organic farming and organic growing but he does understand wildlife and biodiversity and we certainly do have positive encouraging conversations about wildlife he won't come he won't consider cut, cutting any hedgerows or anything when it's nesting season because he knows that there's a hell of a lot of nests in the hedges that are around our garden and the swamp that we affectionately call it um and i have introduced him into eating a few things that he wouldn't otherwise consider eating and in fact um he's now eating uh, nettles stinging nettles uh, without knowing it because his wife has introduced it during lockdown uh, and not told the family so uh, please don't tell him that <laughs> He wouldn't be very happy. <laughs> but um, one of his, uh, one of the guys that works on the on the on the farm, the guy who, uh, works for for the farm, uh, actually came down while Monica was was picking some uh, stuff out, out of the verges um, during lockdown, and kind of like made a comment of, "You'll be all right when we can't get stuff from the supermarket." So there's this kind of um, there's a kind of trickling yeah. down effect of. Well, actually, this is always there. There was an acknowledgement, yeah. <laughs> As Jake said, um, the the farmer's wife, um, who you know I'm really quite good friends with, she's always interested in what I'm doing, and she'll come down and see me picking, and she will also say, "Oh, tell me, tell me how to do that," and you know, he'll she'll want recipes off me, and as Jake said, she will sneakily feed the family weeds without them knowing. <laughs> So there has, sorry, there has been exchange, definitely, yeah. And is it? Do you manage to um, uh, create a subsistence from it? Is it as as a as a unit? Do you have to go out and get other things, or are you pretty much sufficient off the land around you? 
We're, what we're trying to do is we're not actually living directly off the land. Um, we we're, we're work. It, it's taken about eight years to get to the point that where where we are, and we're using around thirty six different species of plants that grow naturally here. Uh, we haven't included in that ornamental ones or, or non indigenous uh, plants that well ones that we know are non indigenous. Um, so it's a, it's a very lengthy process to to, to do this. Um, you know, during lockdown, it's been quite in- interesting in the UK because we are, you know, we can't get or deliveries because we're, we're a very, very long way from supermarkets. So we can get deliveries. I think we get a food delivery once every every three weeks. So uh, and you can only buy eighty items in your basket, as it were. So <clears throat> we've been eating a lot of what's around us. And I had there's a pivotal moment for me um, just uh, three or four days ago when I saw Monica in the garden and she's got this massive heap of wild leaves and it looked enormous she was just standing in the middle of the, of, of, of the land and I looked around her and it looked like nothing had been touched so I mean if that was a normal sort of allotment you'd see the gap but here no it, it, and it keeps going and it's uh, it's quite it's quite incredible we, we kind of looked at each other and went well how many families could we feed you know from from this stuff if people would eat it and one of one of the one of the things that we're doing uh, as part of this practice is is to find out how you eat it. And it takes a long time because all the books you get on foraging and on a, they don't give you anything much. It's usually kind of like, why not make a salad and add some dandelion leaves? Salad, or, make a salad. Or yeah. why not have gin with a few of these berries in it? And it's kind of like, okay, that's great. But that's not really doing anything, is it? If you want to actually do it, you've got to try. And it's a, it takes a long time. Now, one of, one of the, the kind of things I'm interested in is this tract of land I was describing earlier goes all the way up to Scarborough, which is a kind of seaside resort. And um, just outside Scarborough is one of the UK's, or the UK's major mesolithic uh, excavations. So uh, archaeologists go there to look at um, the remains left by, by people who were here uh, just after the last ice age, just after the um, the, the the ice receded, around uh, about seven thousand BC, and it's the same piece of land. Basically, it's the same floodplain for the same river, so the land's very similar, and it's part of the flat farmland that goes up the east coast of England. and And within that site, they've discovered a huge number of seeds, which are a huge number of species of uh, plants. So, I've got a list of those. But, of course, the archaeologists have no idea how people would use them, whether they were actually used for food, um, and if they were, how they used them, what, what they ate them with. So we, we've got an opportunity here now to, to come slowly look at all this stuff because they're the same plants, and the same plants grow here. So to look at what people might have, might, might have eaten back then um, as well. So there's this kind of archaeological element to it. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that people doing the Mesolithic lived through really important period of climate change so <clears throat> for them the the uh, the sea levels were rising too so doggerland which i mentioned earlier would by i don't know s- s- several thousand years after the ice had receded would be flooded so um so where we were looking out onto the sea would have been land at one point and then it would have been inundated so what people made of this who knows i mean certainly um, I, I see kind of parallels between ourselves, looking after, looking at, in a situation of climate change and and our ancestors, um, 
and looking at the foods that they eat. It was, it, this came about only because we learnt the star car was up, up the road. So it's kind of like, it, I don't know, I think we're two or three years into this project when, when no one discovered that, but that, that's this other element to it. So it's kind of like um, looking, at, looking at our ancestors and also in a time of crisis, if you like. I mean, and, can I ask you a practical question? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things you were saying interested me in terms of how you actually do it. So I understand what Jake was saying, that quite often foraging is very superficial when it's written about. So it's, it's basically another way of getting garnish onto your salad. So when you approach it and you say, well, okay, we're going to try and find out how you, what you can eat and how you can eat it. I presume this isn't a process of simple trial and error, or you'd be very, very good friends with the the local hospital. <laughs> okay. Well, there's there's two things involved there. Obviously, the, the one issue that's involved is literally edible. Is it edible? Is it toxic? Um, that information is quite easy, and you know, it's easy to get hold of reliable information regarding that. Is it is it toxic or is it edible? although it, that does have caveats that one of us could talk about later. Um, but the just knowing that something is edible, um, there are so many different ways to cook something, and some of those ways will give you a really unpleasant result, and other ways will give you a surprisingly delicious result. Um, a really good example is goosegrass, um, which we've had uh, a bit of experimentation with just this spring. Previously, I mean, we've both known for quite a long time that goosegrass is edible. Um, There are certain mainstays um, in terms of information about which plants you can find and pick and eat and which ones you can't. Richard maybe is one of the sort of um, heroes of foraging uh, and wild food. He wrote wrote the book called uh, Food for Free. Food for Free, back in the 70s. And so Richard maybe will tell you that you can eat goosegrass. He won't really necessarily tell you how. Um, And other people, you can look on the internet. There are many sources that tell you goosegrass is edible. The Commando Handbook of Survival will tell you you can eat it, but it doesn't tell you how. It's very high in vitamin C. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I gave goosegrass a go and I thought, well, this is quite a fibrous, uh, quite a tough plant. So it obviously needs a boil. So I got the goosegrass. It was young goosegrass in the spring and I boiled it like a vegetable. Most wild plants, the cooking method will be can be used like spinach. So I thought, what do you do with spinach? You give it a light, you know, light boil steaming. Basically, you, you address it with hot water. So I did this with the goosegrass, and it was absolutely disgusting. There's no way I could have... It was so... It was gall bitter. And I was trying to feed it to my, what, my my teenage child. No way, not happening. So, <laughs> so I took goosegrass off the list. But subsequently, Jake has been determined, I think because of the Commando Handbook, that we were... We're, no. 
We will, we will eat goose grass. The thing is, goose grass is everywhere, and it's ubiquitous. It's just, just everywhere. We just cleared some brambles, and what's growing up? Goose grass. No, so, so I just so yeah. he he insisted I had yeah. to I had to work out how to eat goose grass, <laughs> and I thought okay, and you nibble on a little raw bit, and it kind of tastes. It's quite fresh. It tastes like peas, actually, like sort of sugar snap peas or something. So I thought, well, maybe I'm not going to put it anywhere near boiling water ever again. So what else could I do? And it was the pesto season when uh, the ramsons are just coming up and you've got the nettle tips. So you make a lot of nettle pesto. That's traditional for foragers. And I thought, right, I'm going to give it the pesto treatment and I'm just going to bash the hell out of it in a pestle and mortar. I'm going to mix it with ramsons and a bit of sorrel and I'm going to make pesto so we gave it a go and lo and behold it did actually work Um, there was no bitterness it had a kind of fresh sort of greeny springy pea flavour and best of all teenage daughter teenage daughter loved it no complaining there in fact I I liked it a little bit less than (laughs) she did (laughs) so that's a major success I think so in terms of trial and error, uh, in, yeah. a, in, in, the, in the palatable department, it's definitely trial and error. But in terms of toxicity, we have managed to stay alive. Uh, another story there would be the cow parsley hemlock story, because you, if, if you, cow parsley is edible. It's, also, it's actually wild chervil. It is the wild version of the herb that we know as chervil. Um, and so for a long time I was reading that cow parsley was edible, but you will, any responsible information source will tell you that there is a highly toxic lookalike species, which is hemlock. And if you're remotely unsure, um, you shouldn't go anywhere near it. Now, I was quite convinced that the plant we have here was cow parsley, but I had never seen hemlock and I couldn't find any hemlock. And it went on, it was... How many years? God, it was a lot of years, wasn't Number, it? Yeah, five it was years, probably maybe. five or six yeah. years until I finally managed to see hemlock because it's growing wild on kind of farm wasteland but about like half a mile from here. And I immediately realised the difference when you've actually got the two plants in front of you. In photographs and, and, and illustrations, it's very difficult to see that there's any difference. Yeah, this is why some of the books just are no good, particularly ones where people do like a, kind of drawings and, and paintings mm. of the other things. So, but yeah. witnessing the plant, you can actually, you can see the clear differences. Mm. So it wasn't until I had seen hemlock and totally felt confident about the difference that I then for the first time ever ate cow parsley um and now um, we're eating it every day now we're eating yeah. it every day it's, there's loads of it it's just like everywhere how do you do what do you do with the cow parsley well the spring leaves before they get too big um you can you can just chop them up and just use them as a sort of in a herb sense just throw them into any kind of stew soup casserole dish They've got quite a kind of musky sort of flavour, haven't they? Quite a deep, mm. earthy flavour. Mm-hmm. Um, probably similar to chervil. I've never actually used chervil as a herb, so I don't know. But what I've now discovered, literally weeks ago, um, is that the stems that start to form for the flower spike, which are different to the leaf stems, it's like a cylindrical, circular, strong 
stem. Um, if those are caught early enough before they get tough, before they go too tall, you can just strip off the outside skin and then just chop them up and saute them or whatever. I say that they're like carrots. I, dis- I, I disagree. Jake is not convinced. They taste like something else. They taste herby. They've got a kind of... They taste like know, carrots. They, no, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it, it's, and, uh, alongside all this is it, trying to make work about it, artwork. So um, we are kind of uh, sort of... Um, it's take, it takes a long time. And, and another thing that, that takes a long time is to work out how to make artwork about it because there's so much stuff about... The, 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 the world is, is kind of like uh, inundated with stuff, uh, ideas about the wild and about the countryside, which we think is absolutely wrong. Uh, the idea of uh, idyllic nature and... Uh, yeah, it's totally romanticised. And romanticised, yeah. And it's kind of... Um, in, in fact, as you know, nature's quite quite brutal, um, and and if you live in an area like this, you you kind of like see the corpses of, of 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 animals, and you see kind of what happens when a bit of pesticide gets on on the wrong bit of plant, and you see a decimated kind of like kind of burnt earth kind of area, that kind of thing, and and it's kind of like kind of like going back to our Mesolithic ancestors who had to live. Without farming, uh, without without the the, the cultivated uh, plants and, and and domesticated animals, um, that's quite tough. It's quite brutal. And we have actually wondered how how they might have known to not eat something and end up dead. Yeah, well, it's trial and error. I guess I guess it's passed on. So this stuff was never written down, obviously, because there's no there's no written language. So it would have been oral. Um, so kind kind of re rediscovering stuff is, is quite a lengthy process as you might imagine so you know we, we came to Helsinki in 2016 to Pixel Lake and we, we, we did a workshop and a talk and um, I've, got, I've got to say at that point which is like what, four years ago um, no, one, no one's really interested in what we were doing in the UK at all and um, it was really nice to speak to people who said, oh, yes, we have wilderness here. Yeah, it's quite normal. And then we listened to a guy, a, uh, a talk by a photographer who, who was born up in the north of, of Finland and grew up kind of in the wilds and then went back there and was realised he was on, on about to be pounced on by a pack of wolves, which he didn't realise they were, were so playful and they were just pushing it a bit more. To see, the young ones were pushing it to see if they could actually get him. Um, and uh, we talked to some pe- people there uh, in Helsinki, and it was great. And uh, from that, uh, we came back to the UK, and um, we did quite a lot of work, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And and so it was kind of um, it was kind of shot in the arm for us. And I think that what was the? Can you say a bit more about that? About the the work it inspired you to do? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we met some people who were doing uh, interesting things, like a guy who was making uh, solar panels out of out of berries in Latvia, I think. Uh, and we uh, had a look to see how we could do that here, and we succeeded. Um, that's homemade kind of tiny solar panels. He was using um, pigment from aronia berries, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. And we, we don't have aronia berries here, so we thought it's the darkest, darkest purple berry. So we just thought, well, what's our equivalent? What's our mm. substitute? And obviously, it was elderberries. Elderberries, which are which are ubiquitous here, 
Um, and we make, we, you know, we design sculpture for that. And on, on the back of that, we, you know, we were getting, um, we were getting shortlisted for uh, quite real, really well-paid residencies. Um, we didn't actually get them, <laughs> but, but that still, we did the work to make sure that we, you know, we, we were on that level, which was brilliant. And then uh, the following year, we did a whole load of. Um, performances and uh, we did some exhibitions too and um, we did we, we kind of we're kind of working out that what what we're actually doing is 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 performance in a way um, it doesn't seem to fit in, in, in other places although we, we kind of make films and we make uh, visual art um, a lot of what we do is is actually doing it it's it's, it's actually performative yeah yeah so it's taken us a very long time to work that out because neither of us are actually, if you like, performative artists in in in, in, the, in the in the usual way. So um, yeah. so in 2018 we had um, a film uh, show uh, of of several films that we've made, and we did uh, a, a performance as a cafe. You know, we got a, a, an empty shop in the city centre of Sheffield, and we uh, we did a cafe with wild food basically called wild weed cafe and of course some youth came in going what kind of weed you got and we said not the kind of weed you want and uh, we fed some people uh, mainly dandelions and hogweed that was a that was actually a cooking performance yeah, cooking. we actually performed the cooking of the food which was then available for people yeah to to sample and have a meal so we did the window up like like a bistro and then we we washed and and cooked in the window uh, wash the wild, uh, the, the 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 raw food, and uh, wash the mud off it, and you know, did the whole process through to serving, and uh, yeah, it was quite nice, wasn't it? Mm. We also did a uh, a residency in uh, a, a, an abandoned um, shop, uh, grocery shop, where we designed, we we tried to recreate the movement of wild plants uh, in nature through uh, laser cutting. Uh, plant shapes and and moving them with air and it was basically what it was the projection we used a projector to shine light through it to create giant silhouettes out of perspex and that worked really well and you could view it through a hole in the door because we blacked out the entire place and that worked really really nicely it was very kind of very calm it was very hypnotic yeah so we were trying to create being in the being in the wild in the middle of the city, yeah. yeah. So, um, a couple of people who who came in said it was it was amazing because you could sit there in the dark and look at look at the movement of, of of the shadows, and yet there were car sounds outside, and yet you still felt really calm, which was nice. So, does this, in your mind, tie into movements for slow eating and slow culture? Because it sounds to me as though this has an almost uh, seasonal or cyclical yes. element to it. Yeah, I've um, I've obviously kept my eye on the slow movement for quite a few years now um, because it does obviously it does chime very much with what we're doing and the kind of ideas that we're thinking about. Um, in some respects, I think that we might be a tiny bit well, we might be a little bit more politicised. Um, than some of 
the artists and activists who are involved in the slow movement because we do have this whole angle to the project um, about the about about well basically an anti-capitalist angle about market forces and kind of the the whole global food production systems and networks um, and sometimes within the work we're quite explicit about that and quite vociferous about that so sometimes with that I feel that the the whole slow movement is uh, you know obviously not as a criticism at all but is perhaps a little bit gentle (laughs) which of course it's supposed to be but Jake um, in terms of that time seasonal time thing that you just mentioned Owen I think Jake being here in lockdown yeah lock- something really hit you didn't it yeah I mean I've been here I mean I come here really often but I haven't been here for like the whole of spring before and it's quite amazing um so when I arrived uh, lockdown had just happened and um I haven't been away since and and watching the whole I mean last year last year I became very interested in the idea of the green man the the, the architectural form the, that's being that used in used in medieval cathedrals in fact that goes back into into Roman and and Byzantine culture it's a kind of uh, representation of Dionysus and, and rebirth which is why it kind of fits into the Easter story in Christianity and the rest of it but um, the, the real force of nature here, uh, the spring, the way it is so fast, and if it's surrounded with with plants, it, it's just extraordinary. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. I, I, well, you, you had a realization about time, didn't you? You said this isn't Sheffield time. No, this is ne- this is this is the time world time. It kind of like because I, I live in the city and I work in the city a lot. Uh, one's driven by you know industrial time. Which is clock time, which is you know you know work time. Uh, your meals are punctuated, uh, d- designed to you know by by an industrial world. Those meal times are this, blah blah blah. Um, here it's entirely different. So you allow uh, your natural rhythms to come back, and um, it's much more comfortable and a lot more relaxing. And uh, it's yeah, it's it's really quite extraordinary I mean it's not that I don't do any work I, I do <laughs> it's kind of like but you do it in a different way so I, I, I wonder whether people in lockdown in the cities w- would experience this at all um, I, I don't know I mean it's um, it's uh, yeah it's, it's quite the uh, thing is we have been really productive haven't we during yeah. during this time of sort of lockdown doing nothing we've, we've actually been really productive really busy so mm. it's uh, can I ask you one final question then before we draw this to a conclusion? If um, if somebody's listening to this and they find what you're doing interesting and they think, this is really this is really something I should explore more, what should they do? Well, as part of... Uh, well, uh, we, we've got a, a, what's called a Developing Your Creative Practice grant from the Arts Council England, which is uh, to help us develop our practice... Um, uh, over the next year, and part of this is 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 trying to contact people. So um, we want to have discussions with people about their experiences of this kind of thing, or or their interest. Yeah. So um, please look at our website, which is www.alittlepieceofland.org.uk, or can email us at info at alittlepieceofland.org.uk. <laughs> One word or lowercase. 
all joined up. Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much, you two. I will just say, I'll just add, Owen. Also, we did mention the uh, the heroic Richard Maybe. So Richard Maybe has not just written guides on um, food for free. He's also written other books um, about the um, impact of, on health and particularly mental well-being um, in relation to time in an outdoor natural environment. So people could always maybe chase up that and have a read. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, nice to meet we you. Will, we will speak to you again. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.